0: Very good. If you have a copy of God's Word today, uh, you can go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 20 when we get there. Um, today is our 18th week, not consecutively, but overall our 18th week in the book of Mark. And uh, we will make it as far as verse 27 today. So I think your piece of paper, if you guys follow along with that bulletin that's at the, in the chair sometimes, I think it tells you that we're going to go through verse 30 Uh, My caveat for you is in preparation, I didn't want to keep you a really long time, and that's uh, those particular verses, if you read them, you'll probably know why. They deal with what's known as blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which sometimes is also known as the unforgivable sin. It's a complicated thing uh, that would probably take me more than the 10 minutes that I had left to deal with that fairly. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to record, I've done this a couple times, it's probably been over a year since I've done it, but I'm going to record an additional teaching, just me and a camera, where I will walk all the way through uh, mark chapter 3 verses 28 29 and 30 and then we'll move on next week with the next chunk that we were planning to do beginning in verse 31 so just know that if what I say today doesn't totally match up with what's on your sheet of paper uh, that's how we're gonna address that and you'll be able to find that in either the podcast feed if you follow along with that uh, or on the webpage under the teaching or messages tab so uh, because we've been in mark for a little while I think it's probably worth our time to just quickly review where we've been because this is what I know in my experience a lot of times the way that I approached the Gospels growing up in a church even as a new Christian is I would I would kind of approach an individual story or vignette or anecdote individually so I knew Jesus said a lot of stuff but I couldn't have told you what order he said it in or really where he was or who was with him and that stuff really matters in the same way that you would read the biography of a famous person maybe you're into World War II stuff or an artist that's passed away you wouldn't just randomly pick a chapter and then go back and read chapter two and then read chapter eight and then read chapter three you would follow the rising and falling action of that person's life and the way that the Gospels are written are intended to be read the same way so for the sake of kind of catching you up on where we've been Mark opens his biography with not Jesus but John the baptizer Jesus cousin we see John the baptizer go out to the edge of a big river outside of Jerusalem in the wilderness and he begins baptizing people and eventually He baptizes Jesus. After Jesus is baptized, he goes into the desert outside of Jerusalem, and he spends 40 days there without food, uh, possibly without water, and being tempted and tried as he's fasting and praying by God's enemy, who is called Satan. Now, in those 40 days, Jesus does what no other person has ever been able to do in human history. He resists Satan permanently. He doesn't give in to temptation. The devil tries to tempt him with power. He tries to tempt him with influence. He tries to tempt Jesus' physical needs with food and water and rest. Regardless of what Satan throws at Jesus, even when Satan tries to quote scripture at Jesus to convince Jesus to compromise himself, Jesus refuses to do so. Now many of us read that story and we feel like Jesus is probably at a spiritual low point because he's tired and he's hungry. But in fact, practicing that kind of spirituality with God alone in God's presence means that Jesus is at a spiritual high point. And it's his divine nature coupled together with his human nature that's able to uniquely do what no one else in human history has ever done, which is to tell the devil, no, once and for all. After those 40 days, Jesus moved into a region of Israel that's called Galilee. This is where he's been uh, all the way through Mark chapter 3. He's still there in and around the city of Capernaum, Bethsaida, the Sea of Galilee is there, and there's a set of cities that exist all the way around the shore of this region. Jesus starts his ministry there in the synagogue, which is like a small version of the temple in Jerusalem. There's only one temple, but you can think of the synagogue as like a franchise, if you will, of the temple in Jerusalem, where there's a priest. He's not the high priest, and you can't make sacrifices there, but they have copies of the Old Testament scrolls, and you could go on a Saturday on a Sabbath, and you could hear the scrolls read, and you could practice uh, partaking in the Passover meal, if that was the time of year that it was. So Jesus goes into this place. He sits and listens. And then he stands up and he sends a demon away who's been bothering a man for a number of years. That's Jesus' first public miracle in Mark's gospel. After that happens, Jesus goes to Peter's house where Peter's mother-in-law is deathly ill. He heals that woman. She gets up, makes them dinner. And then that night, as soon as the sun sets and the Sabbath is over, all the people in the city who are oppressed by demons, who are sick, who really have any kind of problem at all, they line up outside of Peter's house to meet with Jesus. Jesus gets up early the next morning to go and be away with God the Father, even though he's been up most of the night practicing healing and exorcisms and teaching people and giving them hope. His disciples finally find him probably around mid-morning, and when they get to him, he says, The reason that I stepped from eternity into the world is to seek and save those who are lost, to preach the good news of the near-at-hand kingdom of God shortly after that Jesus has five confrontations with a group of people who are called the Pharisees when you see the word Pharisee you're gonna see it again today or the word scribe in Mark's Gospel we're talking about a group of people who are kinda political kinda religious kinda social they have a a leadership role to play even though they're not elected it's not a democracy Uh, they choose to follow all of God's laws as an example and therefore they feel that they have earned the right to look down their noses at everybody who doesn't follow God's law And that's the posture that they bring to Jesus five consecutive times. Once when he heals a man whose hand doesn't work. Once when uh, they approach him about how joyful he is. Once when they approach him and challenge the kinds of people he's been spending time with. Once when he heals a man who could not use his arms or legs. And then once when he refused to follow their traditions and instead said that he would follow God's will for his life even if it didn't match up with what the scribes and the Pharisees and the law keepers wanted from him. Now, meanwhile, as this group of people are pestering Jesus, following him around, trying to catch him in a lie or trick him into saying something that would cause him to lose his influence, you guys know what this is like. It's that behind-the-scenes video that somebody takes of a celebrity when they're not sharp, when they're not on stage, when their makeup isn't on, and they make the racist comment, or they talk about how they hurt somebody a long time ago, or they say something bigoted. That's what these Pharisees are trying to do to Jesus, but they can't catch him because he's not a bad guy. There is no secret side of Jesus. He's the same in public as he is in private. And because of that, his reputation has grown. Word of mouth has spread far and wide throughout this whole region of Galilee. Now, if you looked at it on a map, it doesn't look that big. But without cell phones, without internet, and without gas motors, it takes people a long time to get around. So the fact that Jesus has grown in influence in what's probably a year or less of being a rabbi is significant. It's unique. The people don't know what to do with him. Big crowds have begun to follow him around. Each time he stops and performs miracles, people just keep coming and keep coming. At one point, he has to tell his disciples to have like a getaway boat for him out on the water in case the crowd crushes him and forces him into the Sea of Galilee. Um, Another time, he is up all night, like I talked about, at Peter's house. And then in our story today that we'll see, Jesus, the, the building he's staying in is so full of people who want to touch him and be healed that he can't even get to the table where the food is and he can't eat. And so people have begun to become concerned for his health for his sanity and that kind of drops us into the passage that we're going to read today so Mark chapter 3 beginning in verse 20 then Jesus went home okay immediate question does he have a home where does he live probably what this means is Jesus returned to Simon Peters house in Capernaum Jesus has been using Peters house as a base of operations we know that he's welcome there anytime he wants to come by because he saved Peters mother-in-law's life If you save somebody's life, I guarantee you could call them at a moment's notice and say, I need to crash on your couch, and they're going to say yes every single time. So Jesus goes back, and here's what happens next. The crowd gathered again. Remember who the crowd is. These are not the disciples. These are not people who've chosen to follow Jesus. These are people who are coming to Jesus to get something and then going away once they think they got whatever it is that they came to find. There are so many people, Mark says in verse 20, that they could not even eat. And when his family, whose family? Jesus' family heard about this, they went out to seize him. The literal Greek word is arrest him. The reason that your Bible translates it as seize is we think arrest is like police officers coming and handcuffing you. What Mark is trying to tell you is his brothers left home as fast as they could to find Jesus and physically restrain him. To grab him, take him away from whatever it was he thought he was supposed to be doing, and take him back home and talk some sense into him. Why? For they were saying to each other, he is out of his mind. Now we're going to spend a lot more time together next week, beginning in verse 31, talking about Jesus' biological family, his mother and his brothers. One of the ironies of the way the church calendar has fallen this year is we're going to deal with a very challenging text where Jesus almost pushes his mother away on Mother's Day. So you can pray for me as I navigate that because that's just the way it's going to go and it's going to be okay because I think it's going to resolve with gospel truth. It always does. But that's coming up. You can look forward to that. Maybe that's a good preview for next week. But if you can consider Jesus' life as a film, if you think of it as a movie, or like I said earlier, another biography you may have read, these verses are sort of just an aside. They're a quick scene where we see Jesus' brothers, hear something, maybe they get a phone call that Jesus is out of his mind, and so they pack a quick bag and they jump on the first plane out of Nazareth. And then that's it. We're not going to hear from his family again until after this whole encounter happens, beginning in verse 22. So let's look at verse 22 and keep reading. Now, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, remember, they're in Capernaum. This is away from Jerusalem, which is the capital city. So some of the Pharisees that are bigwigs have heard from the Pharisees in the region of Galilee that something's going on, and they're calling in the big guns to come down and figure out, is this guy possessed by a demon? Is he out of his mind? What's going on? The local Pharisees don't seem to be able to pin Jesus down. So the bigwigs are coming down from Jerusalem. And they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Beelzebul is a Greek word that's stolen or borrowed I guess you could say from a Hebrew word that's borrowed from an Old Testament Syriac Aramaic word which is Baal or you may have heard it pronounced Baal B-A-A-L okay so here's what's going on Beelzebul roughly means in Greek king of the demons that's a big deal you and I don't have a name I guess if we said Satan maybe you imagine a guy with red horns and a pitchfork tail and a pitchfork and a sharp tail and a crown on his head and maybe you think he's the king of demons but in the economy of the ancient Near East, there was a pantheon. There wasn't just one god, one Satan, and they were perpetually at war with each other. There was a whole bunch of different gods and angels and demons, good gods, bad gods. And so Beelzebul is this ancient, considered to be this ancient prince of demons who rules over other demons. Now why? Why would a group of people who have seen Jesus heal, deliver, be kind to, feed, sit with, touch, make eye contact with, all kinds of people in need, why would a group of people see those actions and interpret them to be representative of the work of Satan that should immediately feel backwards to you and me we should go uh, I don't know where these scribes are coming from but I'm already not sure I'm on the same page as them well let's let them speak for themselves he is possessed by beelzebul and by the prince of demons he casts out demons so they're saying that the only way that Jesus could have the necessary authority to cast demons out is if he himself exists on sort of the organizational chart of hell that he's sort of a middle manager of a certain set of demons and maybe the demons aren't doing exactly what he wants and so that's why he's kicking them out if that seems ridiculous to you it's ridiculous that's right you have the right mindset what we're seeing is a group of people who are so offended by Jesus radical love that they have to find a way to justify him away They're coming up with excuses. They're way, 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 way out of line. They're so far from logic that Jesus has to respond to them in verse 23. So he called the scribes to him. Remember, he's in the middle of healing so many people that he can't even get to the dinner table and eat. He's surrounded by people with real needs, but he calls a timeout. He brings the scribes in close, and he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? That's a good question. It's one that we should be asking ourselves, too. If a kingdom is divided against itself, so you can think civil war or in the uh, history of Israel, you can think of when the northern and southern kingdoms split after Solomon died. There's an immediate history to this that Jesus is referencing, okay? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, then that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and he is divided, then he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. Now, at the very end of, I skipped over it when I was reading, at the very end of verse 24, or excuse me, verse 23, Mark says that Jesus is speaking in parables. So he's telling a story that's kind of an analogy that's supposed to lead to a point. The reason he says parables, plural, is because we just heard the first parable. Jesus asks three questions. He says, if a kingdom is divided, how can it stand? If a house is divided, how can it stand? If Satan is against himself, how can he stand? That's one set of questions, kind of a story that he's telling a parable. Here's the second parable. It's one verse long. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then, indeed, he may plunder his house. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to try to understand what's going on in the mindset of Jesus' family, because they have an identity issue with who Jesus is. We're going to try to understand what's going on in the mindset of the scribes and Pharisees, because they're having an identity issue with Jesus. Then we're going to, as quickly as we can, unpack both parables and allow Jesus to answer the question of who he really is. I told you back when we started the book of Mark that there were three major themes that we were going to try to trace through the book of Mark. One of them is human longing. Obviously, there are people here who are desiring to find out who Jesus is. Some of them want him gone because he threatens their little kingdom. Others are hoping that he's who he says he is because they would find completion and a home in that, that he could be their God, that he could take care of them. So that's number one that's in play. We don't see Peter specifically here. That was number two. But the third is Jesus' identity. And this is the first time that we come really, really close to Jesus basically just writing out who he is on a name tag and slapping it on his robe and making it as clear as day to the people who are around him. So keep that lens in your mind as we navigate back through what Jesus is doing in these parables. The point is not so much to understand the parables, but to understand who Jesus is. So for people like you and I, most of whom have already made our minds up about Jesus, that's why you're here today, because you know who he is and he's done something for you that you needed done in your life. It can be very challenging to understand the mindset of the Pharisees and why they were sometimes very, very aggressive with Jesus. Now, we've read that Jesus delivered people from demons, and most of us hear that and we think, good, he should have done that. And we've read that he healed the sick and he fed the hungry, and we say to that, great, I'm glad that he did those things. Those are good things. It's these things often that make Jesus attractive to you and I in the first place. They don't work against our idea of Jesus being loving and kind and good, They inform it. They're the evidence that we need to make the case that maybe Jesus is someone worth taking seriously. They're physical expressions of the divine love of God for humanity, and these things bring us comfort. They lead us to worship as they should. But for the Pharisees, they've never met anybody like Jesus. His religious zeal was simply too much for them, too radical. I believe that some of the Pharisees sincerely tried to find a place, at least at first, early in Jesus' ministry, They tried to find a place for Jesus to fit into their system. I don't think they immediately wanted him gone or dead. They reached that conclusion after they failed to make him fit into their system as another cog in the religious machine. A man named Nicodemus is a great example of that in John chapter 3. I don't have time to read that to you today, but you could read it on your own if you're unfamiliar with that passage. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night because Nicodemus is nervous about his own reputation, So he approaches Jesus under cover of darkness and begins to ask some genuine questions about who Jesus is and what he's there to do. But even Nicodemus can't wrap his mind around who Jesus is because Nicodemus is using all of the wrong categories. When he meets Jesus, he assumes that Jesus' identity is just a rabbi, just a teacher, just another wise and enlightened and well-educated religious leader, when in reality he was speaking face-to-face with the God of the universe. The Pharisees could appreciate devotion to the law of God But it was the, from their perspective, extreme way that Jesus loved people, even the very worst people in Jewish society, that took him from someone they couldn't understand and turned him in their eyes into someone who was a threat. For many of the Pharisees who lived in and around Capernaum, Jesus came across like a liar. And if you're taking notes today, that would be the first thing that I would encourage you to write down. To his opponents, Jesus was a liar. They assumed that at best he was being dishonest and that at worst he himself had been deceived to the point that he actually believed what was in their opinion the kind of nonsense that he was spouting off. They thought he was a man who had some kind of magical or spiritual power over darkness, a man who could demonstrate miracles but did so only in order to grow his own fame, to try to seize power, to generate money, uh, to, to become a person of greater influence, to build a larger following. But as a teacher and a leader... They assumed that he was some kind of showman, some kind of charlatan, that he was doing magic tricks. Now this may sound like a less common view among the people that you bump shoulders against all day long at work or at school or in your personal life. But I occasionally meet people who are honest enough to tell me that they believe that the entirety of the New Testament was fabricated. It was made up. It was designed by an offshoot of first century Judaism in order to stir up unrest among the Hebrew people so that they could eventually overthrow the Roman government and kick them out of Jerusalem and retake rule of their own people. Um, The most influential academic person to take this position, in in my understanding, is a guy named Albert Schweitzer. You probably have never heard of him before. But around the turn of the 19th century, he wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus. I'm going to read you a quote from that, and I want you to just listen for how modern this take is. This sounds very normal and isn't a surprising perspective on a secular person of who Jesus is. He says, first of all, the priesthood, he's talking about the Old Testament priesthood of the Bible, has to be deprived of its influence. He's saying Jesus is here to undermine the institution, the power dynamics of being a priest in the Old Testament. Then, an improvement of the social condition of mankind has to be introduced. So Jesus has to teach about how life will be better if you follow him or you follow his way since the level of morality among the people around him depends on social conditions. In other words, you don't follow a new teacher if he doesn't sell you something that sounds pretty good. Now, here's where Albert comes right out and tells us what he thinks. Jesus was a social reformer. This is a very common perspective. And unfortunately, it's a common perspective among churches that would call themselves evangelical. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that if you follow Jesus, you'll just go with the flow and the status quo of social norms will never change. No, the opposite is true. But the reason that Jesus can bring social reform is because he's God. The reason he can bring social reform is because he died in your place, lived a life that you couldn't live, and was resurrected. So he has something divine to offer you. If he's just a man, if he's just a great teacher, even if he's the greatest teacher in history, he's really no better than you are. He just happened to read better books than you've read so far. That's what it would boil down to. You can't trust a person who has the same nature as you to deliver you from your nature because your biggest problem is not your behavior. Your biggest problem is the state of your heart. It's the things that you want. It's the stuff you believe. It's the ideas and the phrases and the words that haunt you, that echo in your mind that you can't deliver yourself from. And that, frankly, therapy and counseling may help you navigate but can't remove. Only the Spirit of God made accessible to you by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus can actually change who you are. And so if we boil Jesus down to just a social reformer. Even if we think maybe he was never real in the first place. Maybe he was just a figurehead written back into history to inspire a group of people to rebel against their oppressors. That kind of person can really do you no good. He's not able to deliver you from anything. All he can do is inspire you to deliver yourself. And if you're honest, you've already been trying to do that for a long time and it hasn't gotten you very far. So we need something more from Jesus than him to just be a really, really good liar who maybe has better ideas than we've heard other places. Now, maybe if I lay it out for you like that, you can see how prevalent this line of thinking really is today. No, most people would not be forthright enough to admit that they think that either Jesus is a liar or Christianity is a lie. But you probably know someone who interacts with the New Testament in the same way that they interact with the Quran of Islam or the Bhagavad Gita uh, or the Book of Mormon or some of the sutras of Buddhism. For people who do that, who want to bring the New Testament down as just another religious book that gives you some good moral guidance they are misunderstanding not just the heart of Christianity but the person Jesus at the core of our faith any of those systems would essentially treat Christianity like a ladder of moral good and evil that people can climb if they want to live a better or more enlightened life this view of Jesus makes him at best a figurehead or the symbolic head of a social movement and at worst a liar look back at verse 22 if you have your Bible open the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, this is what I mean. By this point in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was understood to be a liar to the point that some thought that he might even be a tool of God's enemy. That's what they mean when they call him Beelzebul. That claiming to be from God, he was actually working directly against God's will. So, to his opponents, Jesus was a liar. To his family, Jesus was a lunatic. So this throws us back to verses 20 and 21 a little bit. I think it's probably obvious to you in verse 21 that Jesus' family thinks he's a lunatic. They said so. They said he's out of his mind. They were saying to one another that they thought that they need to go down to Capernaum in order to rescue Jesus from himself. And this remained the reputation of Christianity through much of the earliest days of our faith. In Acts chapter 26, the Apostle Paul, who was alive um, after Jesus was ascended back to heaven, but was himself called by God to spread the gospel and begin writing letters to the early churches. The Apostle Paul was toward the end of his life, and he'd been captured by the Roman government. And it was very complicated, because as you know, Rome was kind of the big government in Israel, but they allowed there to be this puppet government of the Jewish king, who still existed. And so when you read the story of Jesus' crucifixion, it's very similar to what Paul went through in Acts 26, because there's a lot of people in charge, and they're all kind of pinballing, in Jesus' case, Jesus around before he's crucified. And in Paul's case, they're pinballing Paul around from leader to leader, from throne room to throne room, from jail to jail, nobody really resolving the issue because, just like Jesus, Paul was innocent, and he was kind of being brought to court on propped-up charges. So um, in Acts 26, I want to read you a passage beginning in verse 22... Paul's been captured, uh, he's been taken captive by emissaries uh, from Rome, from the Roman government, because he was going to be beaten to death by Jewish people, but then he said, wait, wait, I'm a Roman citizen, and so they had to hold off on killing him and allow him to go before the Roman governor in Judea, but there was like a transition of power at the same time, and you probably don't care about that, but I want you to know that he's about to talk to a guy whose name is Festus, and you've probably never heard of Festus before. Festus is the local Roman Governor. And in this conversation, another guy named King Agrippa is going to come up. He's the Jewish leader, and they're kind of playing good cop, bad cop with Paul to try to get him to say that he's not a Christian, but of course he won't. So Paul's speaking. This is Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 22. Paul says, I've experienced help from God to this day. And so I stand testifying to both small and great. I don't know which Festus or Agrippa is supposed to be small or great there, but there might be a little bit of a jab there saying nothing except what the prophets and what Moses said was going to happen, which is this, verse 23, that the Christ was to suffer and be the first to rise from the dead to proclaim light both to our people. So he's talking to Herod Agrippa, who's also a Jew. He's a Jew. Paul's a Jew. He says both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now, if you go back a chapter or two in Acts, this is exactly what Paul said that got him thrown in jail in the first place. The Jewish people have no issue with Paul saying Jesus came to save the Jews. They're down with it. It's a little bit different, but they know that there's a Messiah coming, but it is very important to them that the Messiah of Judaism, of all the Jewish prophecy of the Old Testament, it's important to the Jews that he only saved the Jews. So as soon as you start to say that he's here for everybody, now you've stepped all the way over the line and you're in big trouble. So Paul did it once and it got him thrown in jail. He didn't learn his lesson, go figure, because the gospel's the gospel. So he says it again. He says, Christ was to suffer, to be the first to rise from the dead, to proclaim light both to our people... And to the Gentiles. And as Paul was saying these things in his defense, Festus reacts the exact same way that all the people did that Paul was preaching to when he got thrown in jail in the first place. Festus says, You've lost your mind, Paul. You're a lunatic. You don't know what you're talking about. Your great learning is driving you insane. Have you ever met somebody who was so smart that they didn't have any social skills? That's kind of what Festus is trying to say here. He's like, you've got to get out of the books and touch grass, Paul. You've lost it here. You've got to get outside as soon as you can. Okay. But Paul replies. He cuts Festus off, the Roman governor, and he says, I have not lost my mind. Most excellent, Festus, right? Because if I was, I wouldn't think you were that cool, and I just said you are. Paul says, you, I've not lost my mind, but I'm speaking true and rational words. And then he turns back to King Agrippa, and he says, for the king knows about these things. And I'm speaking freely to him, because I cannot believe that any of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not done in a corner. You like that? I didn't hide this from anybody. Do you, King Agrippa, believe the prophets? I know that you believe. So this is interesting, and it's still true for Christians. The closer that you get to telling people the truth, especially if it's a truth that holds them accountable, the higher the likelihood that somebody's going to yell out, you're crazy. Get this guy a syringe full of something, put him in a straitjacket, get him out of here. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's insensitive. He's old-fashioned. He doesn't get the way the world has changed, the way that we talk, the way that we feel, the way that we think. But that's what truth does. It stays true. It just keeps staying true. What I want you to understand is our faith is at least 2,000 years old, older than that if you consider Christianity an extension of Judaism, which I do. So God's always had a people since the beginning of time. Anytime those people have come up against their culture even in a loving and kind way, even with careful words, they will eventually be labeled as lunatics. Jesus is not the exception, so we shouldn't be surprised that even his mother and his brothers back in, uh, in Nazareth, having got word that, that he's not eating and that he's staying up all night praying and there's all these people surrounding him, he's given up his carpentry career, Who, what is he thinking? We shouldn't be surprised that their reaction would be that this is lunacy. Even among the Pharisees, Jesus was considered to be unhinged. I mean, think about the kinds of things that he was teaching. Surely, Jesus didn't really mean that we're supposed to love our enemies, right? Nobody had ever heard anything like this before. Surely, Jesus doesn't really want us to carry the burdens of the people who want to harm us. Surely, Jesus doesn't want us to extend mercy to one another an infinite number of times. That's crazy. Nobody really thinks that that's real, do they? And yet, here's Jesus teaching it again and again and again, And here's this church that just won't go away, that just won't die, that's built on the truth of the gospel. You and I know that Jesus does mean those things. And you know that he's not demanding that from people who are trying to do those things of their own ability. He's demanding that of people who've been given the Holy Spirit of God and are able to walk in obedience. Not that they'll do it perfectly, but that even as they fail to be obedient, there will be mercy waiting on them because of the great love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus. This is precisely the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God that makes the gospel such good news for sinful, broken people like you and me. So to his opponents, Jesus was a liar, and to his family, Jesus was a lunatic. Now let's look back at verse 23 and hear from Jesus who he says that he is. Jesus called to the scribes and Pharisees, and he said to them in parables, First, how can Satan cast out Satan? Remember, there's three questions here. If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. You see, he's getting more and more narrow with the scope of the examples that he's giving. He goes kingdom, household, individual. So kingdom, household, then he says, if Satan has risen up against himself, and if Satan himself is divided, then he cannot stand, but he is coming to an end. And the other parable, that no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then, indeed, he may plunder his house. These two statements, these two turns of phrase are Jesus rebuttal against the idea that he is a liar as well as the label of lunatic that his family has applied to him and there are two parables in play here the first explains that Jesus can't be a tool of Satan this means that he is not intentionally working with Satan which would make him a liar but it also means that he's not accidentally working for Satan which is possible if he's a lunatic maybe by being possessed or by being out of his mind the first parable about Satan's house being divided explains what is not happening so Jesus is saying this is what you think and it's wrong the second parable explains how things are supposed to go and reveals Jesus' work on the earth. It's much shorter than the first. Jesus says he's entered the world, which in this parable is called the house. He says that there is a strong man in that house, in this case Satan, who has had a lot of power and a lot of authority for a long time to the point that he's amassed some kind of treasure. Otherwise, what is there for Jesus to plunder? Because we can see Jesus plundering Satan already in the first three chapters of Mark's gospel freeing people, caught up in Satan's lies and in Satan's influence, then we can conclude that Jesus is not just talking in hypotheticals, but that he has actually bound Satan. And more than just drawing that inference, because we have worked through the Gospel of Mark chronologically, we were there. We watched Jesus bind Satan all the way back in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus submitted himself to Satan's temptation and influence and resisted him. Jesus and Satan are not two equal powers struggling for an advantage in an eternal supernatural war. That's another kind of misnomer that pop culture and movies and music would like you to believe about light and darkness. Whatever the darkness does, it's allowed to do. As soon as God wants that darkness done or limited or stopped, it just happens. Satan has been allowed to run amok. That will come to an end. When and where Jesus encounters him, and you see it in Mark's gospel, the the demons have no choice. Jesus doesn't have to play chess against them or, like, a game of laser tag. They don't have a duel in the street to see who can win. Jesus says, get out, and they say, don't make us. And he says, I said, get out, and they get out. That's how it goes every single time. Jesus resisted Satan because Satan's only tactic that he has for any of us is to tempt us with things that he thinks that we're weak to. Jesus demonstrated strength instead of our weakness on our behalf when he resisted Satan to the end. And because Jesus resisted Satan, Satan is now out of tactics, and he has no other tricks up his sleeve. Even Jesus' coming death at the end of the book of Mark, we're still 15 chapters away from that happening, that death will be the biggest loss that Satan has ever experienced, even though at face value it probably looks like his greatest victory. It will be the beginning of the restoration of God's kingdom on earth as people are set free from Satan and sin forever. So, if Jesus was a liar then he would be working in conjunction with Satan, and that would mean that he was healing and exercising demons by Satan's power, which doesn't make sense because it isn't true. If Jesus was a lunatic, then he would be working under Satan's influence and would never send away demons who were harassing and oppressing people. The only explanation for what the Pharisees have seen and Jesus' family has heard is that Jesus has to be something other than a liar and other than a lunatic. And so for that answer, I want to read you one of the best quotes ever written in the Christian world this is from a book called mere Christianity by CS Lewis CS Lewis says this I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that is Christ they say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God that is the one thing we must not say a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. So here's what you can do. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him what he is, Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is Jesus? To all who follow him, Jesus is Lord. That's who he is. And if you think of him that way, if that's the lens you bring to what he's doing, it makes perfect sense why the demons would flee from him, why he would care for his people. Every good ruler, I know, we haven't had a good one in a long time at any level, but a good ruler, if you go back in human history to find one that's not corrupt and not sold out to interests other than the good of the people they rule, they actually care about their people. Go figure. It's not all hot air and posturing and trying to beat the other team. There's a genuine concern, almost a sense of fatherhood in the heart of a good ruler, where they sit on their throne because they need to, Because we need someone to do that, to rule and to give order and to help us. But they get down off that throne as often as they have to to be in our lives, to love us. There's a reason that for you and I, in 2023, have a negative relationship with powerful people. Because every powerful person that we know is bad for us. They don't keep their promises. They aren't working for our good. They're not in our corner. They're selfish. So when we come to a Jesus who wants to have authority who would like to lay out boundaries or laws, who says things about even our own identity where we think, I don't want that to be true. I don't want to have to try to live that way. That doesn't sound like flourishing in my life. We resist because it's been so long since we had a good example. It's been so long since we saw anybody actually take the power they were given and do something good with it. It's been too long. We have to go all the way back 2,000 years to Jesus a man who in his own context was misunderstood by his peers for the same reasons that we often resist him. Because the most obvious answer, we don't want to land on that, he can't be Lord because if he's Lord, then I have to do something about it. If he's a liar, I can dismiss him. If he's a lunatic, I'm right to oppose him. I should. I should tell everybody I meet to stay as far away from every church and every Christian that they can possibly encounter on the face of this earth. But if he's Lord, that demands something from me. It requires me to make a decision. Now I'm either aligned with the God who is Lord, or I have rebelled against him. And that creates accountability that I would rather avoid. My friends, what I am telling you is what Jesus told those Pharisees that day. That he has come into the home of the strong man and bound him. And now he is plundering the treasures of Satan, which are the souls of people like you and me. Jesus came to tell people that they can leave behind the chains. They can walk away from all the stuff that's been killing them, the generational patterns in their families, the way that culture wants to shape them, every new treasure chest they open that they think, this time I'm going to finally know who I am and have purpose. They keep looking in all the wrong places. And what did Paul say to Festus? It didn't happen in a corner. I think you've heard about this before. This isn't news to you, but you have a decision to make because Jesus is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of Lords. He is the eternal intelligence that thought up all of creation. He's not just honest, which means he's not a liar. He himself is the truth. He's the truth of God that leads people into solid, logical, reasonable ground as they follow him further and further away from the way of the world. He is the framer of the universe. He is both the architect and the vehicle of the incarnation of God in the flesh as a human being. And that means he is the most sane stable man who has ever lived. All sanity resides in Jesus. And therefore, it's not an intellectual leap to follow him. It's really not. It is actually an exercise in sanity to trust Jesus. And to commit all of your life to him is, in truth, the most logical, defensible, sure thing that you could ever do because he's not just a rabbi from a small town in rural Judea. He's not a liar who just wants you on his team so that he can grow some club of people that call themselves Christians. And he's not a lunatic. He's God in the flesh. He's the unique opportunity to make meaningful contact with the divinity that thought up everything that exists anywhere. Boiled down into a person who's sticking out his hand toward you and making eye eye contact with you and saying, come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? What else is there out there for you if it's not going to be me? Therefore, because God in the flesh is Jesus, Jesus is the smartest man who ever lived, and trusting him is as simple as agreeing with him about who he is and what he came to do. So I'll leave you with this. These are Jesus' words from Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Very simply, a quote from our Savior. He said, the Son of Man came to do this, to seek and to save the lost so don't complicate it. There's not a whole lot more to it than that. He doesn't have to be Beelzebul. He doesn't have to be confused. He doesn't work for Satan. He's not out to do something terrible in your life. He doesn't have an agenda. He wants you to be free because you're never going to free yourself. He's told you what he wants to do. He's more than able to do it. He's seeking you, so let him find you. Just don't run anymore. He'll do the rest. Surrender to him and let yourself be saved by the only Savior that there is. I want to pray that for you now. Pray with me, please. Father, we love you. And Jesus, we love you. And we're thankful for what you've done. Plain and simple, the truth of the gospel is this, that you came, and you didn't have to to a group of people who weren't really waiting for you, who didn't really want what you had when you offered it, who did their very best to run you off, and you have just continued to come back and come back and come back and to wait on us and to forgive us and to welcome us back in and to make peace with us where we are totally unable to make peace with you or anybody else or even ourselves. So God, far be it from me, to manipulate, to try to stir up an emotional reaction, to put pressure on anybody in here to do anything that isn't exactly in your timing. But also, God, move, please, and save those of us who need to be saved today. Make it clear. Move us past the questions that we may have. Move us past the social resistance, the fear of what it would mean to have to give up or let go of certain things that we've held on to for a long time, even though they've never done for us what we thought they would. Give us the courage today, the simple faith to trust you and to respond we need you we need you today as much as we have ever need you God and we trust that you're here with us and that you'll do what you've promised to do and that it's not just this room or this property or this address or these people but all over the world God you are engaging with your people today inside outside in all kinds of languages at all different times and we just want to be a piece of that so Father we do love you and we trust you and we thank you for the goodness of your word for the reliability of your gospel in a sea